Well, we left our little fledgling Indian religion about 400 years old after the death of its founder, struggling with all kinds of uh, contentious issues and the splits into 18 different schools over various doctrinal differences. But the biggest upheaval was yet to come. And that is, at the time, somewhere around 100 BCE, the emergence of the Mahayana. The start of the Mahayana movement is really shrouded in mystery. Nobody seems to know exactly why it arose or where it came from. There are speculations that it grew out of a a focus that had started to shift from monastic practice to lay practice. I think this is an interesting point. And as we explore these different schools that arose in Buddhism, I'd like to encourage us to, to look at them from the standpoint of our own lives and hearts and understanding. Because what I find is that each of the schools speaks to me in a different way. And they all have something important for, for my overall spiritual life. So this suggestion that the Mahayana grew out of lay people's practice is a very interesting one to me. We are, all of us, lay people here. Sony Rinpoche is a lay person. For those of you who don't know, he has a wife and and two children. Uh, His oldest daughter is now 17 and is in a Buddhist nunnery in India, which is a beautiful thing. She plans to stay there seven or eight years, he said. I think this must be every parent's dream to have... (laughs) A child grow up in their footsteps and mostly if you suggest a child to go in your direction they'll run the other way but his daughter is a beautiful young woman so as lay people I think um, we we can't withdraw from the world we are always in contact through our work and through family with human relations And I think because of this contact with human relations, we are often up against the dilemma of human suffering. Monastics can withdraw to a certain extent. Of course, then they have to live with other monastics, and that's not easy either. But they're a little bit withdrawn from some of the stress of the world. So as it could be in this way, that the Mahayana came out of the struggles of ordinary people like you and me, and put more immediate emphasis on compassion as a direct response to the suffering that they saw around themselves. There's another suggestion. These are all suggestions I've read from scholars, none of whom have a firm bead on the true answer. There's another suggestion that the Mahayana arose because it was not so easy to become an arahant anymore. The Arahant ideal had fueled the explosion of Buddhism for many years. And I'm sure you know how in the early days, the Buddha would give one discourse and 50 people would become fully liberated. His third discourse, the fire sermon, he was addressing a group of Vedic fire worshipers of the god Anyi. And he gave a discourse called the fire sermon where he pointed out everything is burning, burning with the fire of greed, with the fire of hatred, with the fire of delusion. And on completion of that talk, all 50 people were fully liberated. And as you read stories of people who came to practice with him, it happened a lot like that also. They practiced for one week, two weeks, a few months, full liberation. So the Arahant ideal was, was strong 
and uh, realizable then. You had living examples of people who in very short periods of time and moderate effort could completely wake up. But as time went on, it said, that became less and less frequent. The Buddha even made this comment over the course of his lifetime, that the quality of the practitioners as he was getting older had declined from the early days. So you can imagine after his death, it became probably harder and harder to actualize the Arahant ideal. There were fewer fully enlightened beings around to inspire. So there needed to be a new generative ideal and that became the bodhisattva. Maybe we don't aim just to free ourselves in this lifetime, but we take a much more expansive view, which is that we aim to develop all the the qualities of a Buddha over many, many lifetimes. It's said that the Buddha himself made his resolution uh, four immeasurable eons previously, and 100,000 kalpas on top of that. And it took him that long to develop the qualities of heart and mind to be able to wake up fully in one lifetime. The bodhisattva ideal then uh, offers us a different way to view our path. It, It implicit within it is the notion of bodhicitta, that we carry on our own practice in order to bring uh, enough wholesome qualities to fruition that we ourselves awaken and then can help bring others to awakening. I find this is an ideal that uh, resonates very strongly for Westerners today. We are nominally at Spirit Rock, a Theravadan center, and yet the appeal of the bodhisattva and the quality of bodhicitta is so strong that for me it's hard to imagine teaching without them anymore. So I find a, a great resonance with these qualities in us as lay people today. Another uh, group of scholars felt that the uh, Mahayana grew as a backlash to the Abhidhamma, that the Abhidhamma had gotten too dry, analytical, intellectual, divorced from heart qualities and the immediacy of liberation, and the Mahayana was a way to bring that back to the center of the teachings. So in whatever way it grew, it grew as a very significant movement Some suggest that it started in southern India, but I don't think that there's uh, clarity even about that. But it clearly grew and spread over the whole of India because there was something so powerful about it. It's interesting to reflect how this bodhisattva ideal kind of uh, sprang to the center at this time period because it's not as though this is a new idea. Siddhartha Gautama was the bodhisattva in his lifetime and previous lifetimes who became the Buddha of our historical era. All his followers knew that. He he alluded to his previous lives and his life story. But throughout the whole Pali canon, there is not a single record of Gautama Buddha recommending the bodhisattva path to any other practitioner. I find that quite amazing. So either he did recommend it, perhaps on an individual basis, and it never got recorded because it wasn't a public thing, or he never recommended it. And it was left up to individuals to recognize the possibility and make their own resolution. 
There is a story in the Pali Canon that describes how uh, the Buddha that we know got his beginning. And I thought I'd just share it because it sheds some light on another aspect of the Mahayana. These four eons and 100,000 kalpas ago, there was said to be an ascetic named Sumedha who had been practicing quite intensely for a while. And that very day was going to go to listen to a discourse by the Buddha of his era who was named Dipankara. This was an earlier Buddha. On the way, Sumedha caught a sight of the Buddha Dipankara and was so moved by his nobility and his radiance and his, his dignified bearing that he no longer wanted to become enlightened as Sumedha. But right at that moment, he gave up his own awakening in order to aspire to become a Buddha in a future era. So he made this this aspiration in the company of uh, Dipankara, uh, in the presence of Dipankara. The Buddha Dipankara read read his thoughts and affirmed that Sumedha would someday uh, continue in his growth to become a future Buddha. And it said that if Sumedha had gone and listened to the teachings of Dipankara that day, he was ripe and would have been fully enlightened. But he gave that up. Then he uh, retired to a cave where he was meditating and reflected, oh, what do I need to do in order to prepare myself to become a future Buddha? How do I need to grow? And it said that the, the list he came up with was the ten paramis. In the Theravadan text, the number of paramis is ten. In the Mahayana, it's six. Um, the Mahayana list is not a, just a subset of the Theravadan list. They're a little different. Nonetheless, they are qualities of heart and mind that are developed both through formal meditation practice and also through life and service in the world. So the list of paramis, again, fits very nicely with a lay life. It is not just another uh, list from the Theravada. It is not just the seven factors of enlightenment, which are qualities that develop uh, really effectively only in retreat practice. But the paramis are qualities that we can generate in retreat or outside of retreat because they include things like generosity and ethical conduct and patience and equanimity. So these became the framework uh, for the Mahayana path uh, the heart of Shantideva's guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. Then the other piece that the Mahayana brought in, in addition to uh, practice for all beings, uh, the liberation of all beings, was the um, focus on the notion of emptiness at the very philosophical center. Now the notion of emptiness also was in the early text, the, the Pali text, the other early 18 schools of Buddhism, but it was not made so central. More often the Buddha talked about what he called the three characteristics of created things, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and selflessness. Those are more at the center in the early texts. But they, they, uh, they can kind of be summed up in this word emptiness. And the Buddha did use the word emptiness to talk about both the emptiness of self and the emptiness of phenomena. Those are both in the early texts. 
but they didn't put it so centrally. So the first uh, text that came along that put it in this new way were the Prajnaparamita sutras, which started to come along somewhere between 100 BCE and 50 CE, just about the turn of, of that millennium. A lot of my commentary on the Mahayana is drawn from this translator named Edward Kanza. He was the fellow British scholar who translated most of the Prajnaparamita texts. So he's very sympathetic to the Mahayana. It was in a way the, the crown of his life's work, those translations. But he also, I feel, has a very balanced view of all the schools of Indian thought. Uh, so I'll quote him from, for some perspective on the Mahayana sutras. What Kansa says is that um, there was nothing really new in the early Mahayana. The teachings on emptiness and the uh, compassion and the possibility of becoming a bodhisattva. But as Kansa says, there was just a, quote, new emphasis on commonly accepted traditional material. Nonetheless, the way it was configured, the, the centrality given to compassion and emptiness put a new enough flavor that the Mahayana emerged as a new school. And these Prajnaparamita writings really crystallized the difference in viewpoint. Prajnaparamita means, as you probably know, the perfection of wisdom or the transcendent quality of wisdom. Uh, It's one of the paramitas in both Theravada and Mahayana. And it's viewed in the sutras as an innate capacity that each of us has already. This is a little bit of a shift from the original text, an innate quality that is already present in us. In fact, it's sometimes described as the mother of the Buddhas because it's the factor of wisdom in all of our minds that allow us to become awakened or to become Buddhas. So Prajnaparamita has a female form and she is sitting at the back of the meditation hall on that altar. That is a statue of Prajnaparamita. We normally place her up front um, on the on the altar with the Buddha, because we like the idea of uh, sort of balancing the masculine and the feminine. One time, a Theravadan monk came in, looked at that assortment, and said, "Oh, Mr. and Mrs. Buddha." <laughs> so for that retreat, we mo- we moved her away. But this retreat, a little more traditional. Just the Buddha is up front. Uh, Just another side note, interesting side note on um, Prajnaparamita. I've read from a Tibetan scholar, and I've also heard Rinpoche say that Rigpa is considered identical with Prajnaparamita. Now, the Prajnaparamita Sutras took an interesting form. They have the Buddha delivering most of them as though they were delivered by the historical Buddha. The Heart Sutra, for instance, uh, the Buddha makes a comment. He's not the main speaker, but he makes a comment. But it's set on a classical uh, location from the Pali text, which is Vulture's Peak in Rajgir. It's a place where the historical Buddha delivered a lot of discourses. So the impression is given that these are also the words of the historical Buddha. 
And if you ask a traditional Mahayana follower, in Asia particularly, they will tell you that, oh yes, the Mahayana sutras, Prajnaparamita sutras and so forth, were delivered by the historical Buddha, but to a different group than the Pali sutras. The Pali sutras were delivered to people of lesser capacity because they really couldn't get it. And these pith teachings were delivered to the people of higher capacity. And that's why they're separate and not why they don't appear in the Pali canon. Western scholars say there is no evidence for that. Western scholars say that these texts were composed by unknown authors. Again, the kind of mystery of the evolution of the Mahayana in the period between about 150 BCE and 50 CE. They, they say that there is no record of any Mahayana schools between the death of the Buddha and this period of around 100 uh, BCE. And some of the records that they look at, just because you might be curious, um, they looked at the words that were written on the scroll or the uh, pillars of the king Asoka. He planted pillars all around India that carried Dharma messages. And they sometimes mentioned different schools that were local to that area. There's no mention of a school that uh, fits the Mahayana. There were also records kept from donations by kings to religious groups. And so it enumerates some of the 18 schools of early Buddhism, but there are no records of Mahayana schools. So the scholars that I've read say there's not even any controversy about the fact that these sutras were written, were written later, authored later. But they put them in the mouth of the Buddha to give them authenticity, I believe, <coughs> and to make them appear as original. The early Prajnaparamita sutras have one particular focus, which is ultimate truth. Over and over and over again, they are statements of the nature of ultimate truth. The Pali texts have mostly teachings about gradual path, developing, cultivating, application of practice. The Mahayana sutras go back over and over again to the ultimate. This is also from Kanza. The lengthy writings on perfect wisdom are one long declamation in praise of the Absolute. Everybody knows, of course, that nothing can usefully be said about the Absolute. This had prompted the Theravadins to keep silent, or at least nearly silent about it. The Mahayanas, on the other hand, consider everything that might reasonably be said about it and then expressly reject it as untrue and inadequate. <laughs> so I love this description. It kind of explains where the paradox comes from in our tradition. And if you listen to Zen teachings, you know they are full of paradox. Zen basically built a dynasty on paradox. And the apparent contradictions between the conventional truth of things and the ultimate truth. If you answer from the conventional, you know, the Roshi will show you the ultimate. If you answer from the ultimate, he'll show you the conventional so that you don't get stuck in adhering to either one. So I love the way that this plays out, for example, in the Heart Sutra the combination of the uh, affirmation and negation that is in the Heart Sutra. In a lot of Japanese monasteries, this is chanted three times a day with, with meals. 
And the chant of the Heart Sutra includes things like uh, the negation of a lot of common doctrine. Uh, One of the lines is, no form, no feeling, no perception, no formations, no consciousness, which you'll probably recognize as the five aggregates. Then it goes on, uh, no ignorance, and so on, up to no end of ignorance. A little bit of ignorance. Which is, you'll probably recognize, the chain of dependent origination in forward order, ignorance creating suffering, and then backward order to end of suffering leading to end of ignorance. So what's so curious about the Heart Sutra is it affirms the basic tenets of classical Buddhism. So they're in people's minds as the sutra is chanted, and then it negates them. So it says, yeah, here are the teachings, and you get familiar because you're chanting them all the time, but then it takes them away. So I think this is a beautiful technique. It exposes the practitioner to the basic teachings, and then it negates them to drop the practitioner into emptiness and cut through any clinging, clinging to view, clinging to doctrine. So one of the interesting flavors you get moving from the Theravada worldview to the Mahayana worldview is you move from kind of a human realm into an archetypal realm. When you read the stories of the Buddha in the Pali discourses, you get a very human picture of the man. He had to work with uh, kings who were often in conflict with one another or the Sangha wouldn't have been supported. He had troublemakers. He had an angry cousin who tried to kill him on a couple of different occasions. When he first woke up, as I think uh, Rinpoche mentioned yesterday, he thought about not teaching. And what he said about it was, if I teach, I think no one will understand it, and that would be a vexation for me. That's a very human emotion to express. Again, he was visiting a group of monks, part of the Sangha, at a location called Kosambi. The monks were in a very uh, tense period of conflict. They had separated into two factions. I don't even remember what they were arguing about, but they were butting heads in quite a mean-spirited way. The Buddha was, was drawn in and tried to make peace and get the two factions to drop their complaints and become harmonious, but he was unable to. And what he said at the end of that also was, this is too much of a vexation for me. And he withdrew. So even the Buddha couldn't still splits within his own Sangha. Late in life, as he was traveling around the countryside, you know, kind of on his way to the Parinirvana, they would get, he would get to a town with his attendant, Ananda, and he would say, uh, my back is aching tonight. I need to rest. Ananda, you give the Dhamma talk tonight. And the Buddha would go off and rest. So you see these very human sides of him in the Pali texts, in the early texts. When you move into the Mahayana texts, it moves into a much more archetypal realm. You get into realms of, of great cosmology and vast expanse of time and space. 
I'll just read a little bit of a, an excerpt from the Avatamsaka Sutra, uh, the Flower Ornament uh, Sutra, to give you a little flavor of this Mahayana view. At that time, the Buddha's lion seat, its round platform of exquisite flowers and many jewels, its base, steps, doors, and all its embellishments, each produced as many great bodhisattvas as there are atoms in a Buddha land. Their names were Oceanic Wisdom, Sovereign King of Occult Powers, Thunder Shaking All, Top Knot of Light of Many Jewels, Bold Intelligence of the Son of Knowledge. There's no more Sariputta and Moggallana in there. <laughs> At the same time that they appeared, these bodhisattvas each produced clouds of offerings. For example, clouds of flowers, of all jewels, clouds of all different fragrances, of lotus blossom, clouds of orbs of jeweled light, clouds of fragrant flames of boundless realms, clouds of jewel-like light spheres from the treasury of the sun, and on and on and on. That kind of Buddha doesn't get a backache. <laughs> so it's interesting. You, you, you get this very inspiring, vast, imaginative view of the cosmos, which gives a perspective on our human life and our work within it, but at the same time you lose a little bit of the, the rooted, bare reality of human existence in, in these sutras. Another flavor of the early Mahayana text, I'll, I'll again let Kanza speak to it. He says, another characteristic as the Mahayana sutras evolved was an increasing spirit of sectarianism. So this is where you start to feel the tension between the new school that's emerging and the schools that are already in place. So the Mahayanas uh, criticized the existing schools for being too self-absorbed, too selfish, too dry, too withdrawn. Again, you could sort of see the lay monastic kind of flavor in that, in that way of looking. As the sutras are expounded, some of the early disciples who are very well respected in the Pali texts become the whipping boys in the Mahayana sutras. They sort of become the butt of the jokes. And in the Prajnaparamita sutras, it's typically Sariputra who becomes the object of a little bit of condescension. They mentioned he was the chief disciple in terms of wisdom in the classical texts. But here, he is the one who needs to be educated because he doesn't quite get the new teachings. So in the Prajnaparamita Sutras, the person who most often delivers the message to educate Sariputta is uh, another bhikkhu named Subhuti. Subhuti is in the classical text, but he doesn't figure very prominently. But the reason he becomes so elevated in the early Mahayana is that he was the Buddha's foremost disciple in loving-kindness. And as the as quality of heartfulness and compassion become elevated, so Subhuti becomes elevated as the exemplar of that. So then the, the controversy arises about what to call the new schools. In the beginning, the new school was called, I think, you know, quite logically, the Bodhisattva Yana. 
It's a name we don't hear very much anymore, but it was the first term that came about. The old schools were called uh, Sravakayana. Sravaka is a term, it's a Sanskrit term, the Pali word is Savaka, that is found often in the original Pali text, and it means uh, listener. So the disciples of the Buddha were called the Savaka Sankho, the assembly or the Sangha of those who listened, meaning in this case, listened to the Buddha. So you'll, you'll hear this in Pali chants, Supatipano Bhagavato Savaka Sankho, the Sangha of listeners. So the uh, term was applied to the early schools, but in not too long a time, it turned into the ones that we have ended up with today, which are Mahayana on the one hand, and correspondingly Hinayana. I don't think the term Hinayana was invented by the Sawaka Sanko. <laughs> the Mahayanas put that term on the earlier schools in a kind of pejorative sense. And that distinction has continued until today. You'll still hear Mahayanas refer to Theravadan practitioners as, as Hinayanas. Um, I think it's because there really hasn't been dialogue over so many, so many years. But just to set the record straight, we prefer to be called Theravadans. <laughs> but of course, the Theravadans couldn't let it go at that either, so they had a counterword for the Mahayanas. They called them Vaitulikas. And this means illusionists. <laughs> so. I won't get into that any further. So out of the early um, Mahayana came also one of the great figures in all of Buddhism, perhaps as an individual second only to the Buddha, and that is uh, this man named Nagarjuna. Not very much is known of his life. He lived sometime around the first century CE. I consider him the greatest philosopher in the whole school of Buddhism after the Buddha himself. And his key work is called Mula Madhyamaka Karika, or Root Verses on the Middle Way. It's a series of, I think, 27 chapters that take a different aspect of life and teaching and reveal where there has been a tendency for conception to form a solidity around the existence of that area and then to cut it away by analysis so that we are brought back to the point of emptiness. So he first starts doing this with simple things like uh, moving, and acting, is there a doer separate from the action being done? Is there a walker separate from the action done? And this is not too radical. Early schools had this kind of outlook also. But then he starts to apply it to um, the Buddha's teachings directly. So if you thought you were going to find relief from emptiness by taking refuge in the path, Nagarjuna also cuts that out from under you. And basically, everywhere the mind turns to find some ground, the dialectic of his inquiry cuts yet again. Until finally, every place that you could go to rest or to reify, 
has been taken away. And I think that's the, the purpose and the power of his writing, is that it, exp- it leads us no- nowhere else but emptiness. Because any concept that we could cling to gets taken away somewhere along the line. The school that was formed um, in his name out of his teachings is called the, the Middle Way uh, School, the Madhyamaka School. And it's still very um, prevalent in, I'd say, all Mahayana um, schools today. He laid a foundation that still exists. So all the Tibetan schools revere him uh, for his contribution. In fact, I'd say he's probably the, the single most important figure philosophically in the Galuk school. He's at the very heart of the Galuk view of things. So I just want to share a few things that Nagarjuna said in this, in this key work. There are a few good English translations around. If you are just beginning and you want to get a little poetical, Stephen Batchelor's translation is recommended. If you're a little more philosophical and you're into some study, Jay Garfield's translation is excellent. So one of the lines from uh, the verses, emptiness stops conceptual proliferation. This is actually very similar to something Rinpoche said this morning when he said that one of the meanings of the word zog or dzogpa was end. And in the application of Dzogchen, fixations come to an end. So this is right in Nagarjuna also. Emptiness stops conceptual proliferation. When we see the emptiness of things the way they are, we don't tend to spin off in thoughts. There's another passage. That to which language refers is denied. That's fairly strong. That to which language refers is denied. So things like floor, chair, mat. Okay, there's no real object there. How about person? How about sentient being? How about suffering? How about the path? That to which language refers is denied because an object experienced by the mind is denied. That is, nothing ever exists firmly enough to be truly called an object. Things are only fleeting in their appearance, and there's no solid existence there. So we can't say that there really is such a thing as an object. Then he continues, the unborn and unceasing nature of reality is comparable to nirvana. This is is a radical statement. The nature of reality is comparable to nirvana. Normally, reality is considered as more like samsara. But Nagarjuna says, because it cannot really be ever be said to have been born, it can also be said to pass away. Therefore, all things are unborn and unceasing. That which is unborn and unceasing is nirvana. So the nature of reality is like that of nirvana. Then he elaborated this one other step. Samsara does not have the slightest distinction from nirvana. Nirvana does not have the slightest distinction from samsara. This really opens the doorway for the non-dual. 
this is the first pointing in any literature that I know of to the uh, ultimate non-duality, that between samsara, as the condition one might wish to move out of, and nirvana, the goal to which one might wish to move. Then this sort of laying of the foundation, although I don't believe he used the word non-dual, set the stage for the elaboration of the non-dual, the first appearance of which I know in, in literature is in the Vimalakirti Sutra, which has a whole a chapter on non-duality and different uh, ways to view non-duality. So Nagarjuna was a brilliant, uh, creative, um, powerful uh, force in Buddhism. This school of the Madhyamaka gained uh, great weight over the centuries. But as was commented this morning, one of the shortcomings is because they were so involved in cutting, 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 taking away, taking away, taking away, they didn't put forth any of their own positive teachings. And that's why sometimes other schools will look at this school and say it's a little nihilistic. All it does is take away. It doesn't give us anything to put our faith in or move forward into. In fact, Nagarjuna himself uh, embraced all of the Buddha's teachings. So that is implicit in his argument. So it's it's truly not nihilistic, but that's a criticism that other schools will make of it that it's not positive enough. Somebody commented last night that Nagarjuna has been claimed as a Mahayanist. Uh, Is that actually the case? Uh, From my point of view, not necessarily. The language that he used in this root text is uh, completely open to both Theravada and Mahayana views. His use of the word emptiness is, is slight, you know, it's more complete than you find in the early texts, but it's just an elaboration. It's not really a new pointing. Uh, there's not a single mention in this key text of the word bodhisattva, for instance. There's very little stress on compassion or the paramis. So it is a text that could fit very comfortably uh, right into the Pali Canon. And I think some Theravadins are beginning to appreciate this now and to uh, begin to claim Nagarjuna as their own. Because he was so early in the Mahayana, it's hard to know whether he was coming from a Theravada or a Mahayana viewpoint. But he's had tremendous impact on, on the tradition, particularly in the Mahayana. So this opening of the uh, equality of samsara and nirvana really lays the groundwork for the next major school that comes into Mahayana, next major school in India, which is that of the Yogacara. Yogacara doesn't mean a whole lot by itself. It just means the conduct of union. But they're much better known by their central doctrine, which is Chittamatra, or mind-only. So this is the same as the mind-only school that uh, Rinpoche was talking about this morning. There are a few kind of central uh, theses in the Yogacara philosophy. The first is that of Buddha nature. They were the first to clearly uh, enunciate this teaching. In Sanskrit, the words are tathagata garbha. 
which literally means the womb of the Tathagatas. So they considered that this innate purity is the birthplace of the Buddhas, somewhat similar to the Prajnaparamita pointing. But the term didn't get, you know, it's, originally it's, it's, a, it's a womb term. Just like Prajnaparamita, it's a very feminine um, evocation. And it didn't get called nature until it, the concept migrated to China, and somewhere in China the translation turned into nature. Then some, I can't remember who it was, some teacher who was translating Asian concepts to Western in the last 100 years began to use the term Buddha nature. I can't remember who did that. So now that's what's come down to us. But remember that that's not the way that it was originally stated. Buddha womb would be a clearer way to state it. Our Buddha womb. But it does, um, it does in here in each of us. It is identical with the concept of the three kayas, the Dharmakaya, the Sambhogakaya, and the Nirmanakaya, which we've been chanting, which I think Rinpoche will explain more about uh, in the next day or two. And another uh, key feature of the Chittamatra philosophy was an attempt to answer the same question that the Sarvasavadins tried to answer, which is, where are your karmic seeds? Remember the Sarvastivadins tried to answer it by saying that past and future are both existent now? The Chittamatrans answered it by saying, oh, they're in a different layer of the mind. And they created or assumed or discovered, I don't know which, another layer of consciousness that they say holds the karmic seeds called the alia vijnana, the storehouse consciousness or ground consciousness. Actually, in their system, it's considered the eighth layer. The, set, the seventh consciousness is considered to be, I think it's mana vijnana. Does anybody know, is that the right designation for the seventh? Klistamana vijnana. Okay. And the idea of that, as I understand it, is that that is where the uh, ongoing ego sort of continues from. So these two extra consciousnesses, in addition to the five physical consciousnesses and the mind consciousness, help explain how things happen that otherwise were hard to explain, such as the continuation of the sense of self and the continuation of of karmic seeds. So these are all part of of Yogacara. who then uh, also invented the term of the three turnings of the wheel, which you may have heard. So this comes out of Chitramatran philosophy. They say the first turning of the wheel was uh, the Buddha's first teaching of the Four Noble Truths, happened in, in Sarnath shortly after his awakening. This, the discourse in which that teaching was given, is known as Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta, the discourse on setting in motion the wheel of the Dhamma. So that's where this concept of the Dhamma wheel and the turning of the wheel comes from. Then they said the second turning of the wheel was the Prajnaparamita Sutras with the focus on emptiness. 
and they considered that their teachings, specifically on Buddha nature and the three kayas, were the third turning of the wheel. So if you hear this phrase, three turnings of the wheel, that's specifically from the Chittimatrans. They became a very influential school also because they became the, the textual basis for a lot of later developments, including, to some extent, their influence on Dzogchen, Mahamudra, Chan, and Zend. So although Rinpoche said their view is not identical with that of Dzogchen, it provided a philosophical basis for uh, some of the Dzogchen view. The Chittimatrans uh, peaked in their influence and popularity around the fourth century. So they continued, but they kind of um, built up and then their influence went on, but they themselves didn't, uh, didn't evolve much more. And in fact, philosophically, this is the end to the development of Buddhism in India. It didn't evolve philosophically beyond this school, apart from small variations. There was a little discussion this morning about the relationship between uh, the Dzogchen view and the Madhyamaka view. And I, I was curious about this, so I asked Minju Rinpoche when he was here on his first teaching trip to the West. It was almost 10 years ago now, I think. Minju Rinpoche is Sotni Rinpoche's younger brother, who's now also a wonderful teacher. Um, he had just done a retreat in Santa Rosa, and uh, my wife and I had the privilege of taking him around a little bit to see some of Marin County. We thought he would enjoy the, the sights. And we had a translator who was Tashi, who many of you know from Tsutni Rinpoche's monastery. So we thought we'll take him up to the top of Mount Tam, a beautiful day and beautiful viewpoint. And as we were driving along, I tried to make a little conversation. And I asked uh, Rinpoche how he found the West. And he said, square and clean. <laughs> and that was it. He didn't elaborate any further. He lived in India, so I could sort of understand why it would look square and clean to him. Didn't elaborate anymore. So I tried another time. And I said, um, Rinpoche, do you think um, Tibetans are happier than Westerners? He said, yes. <laughs> didn't elaborate anymore. So we got up to the top of Mount Tam and we were walking around the path at the top, looking at the view of San Francisco and the coastline. There was not much conversation happening. So I thought, I'll try a different tack. I said, Rinpoche, what is the difference between the Madhyamaka view and the Dzogchen view? The view of Nagarjuna's school and the view of Dzogchen. Then his eyes lit up. He said, ah! And he started talking. He said, the first thing you have to understand is there are 18 different kinds of emptiness. And then he, he talked and talked, and he, he, wanted to sit, he wanted to sit down, so we sat down right on the path. It's a path that only two people can walk by. But four of us sat down, and we had about a 10-minute conversation about the difference between these two views. And what he said in the end was that the Madhyamakas believe that the Dzogchenpas believe that something exists but we don't actually believe that it exists. <laughs> Can you get that? It's this empty, emptiness, luminosity, union. The Madhyamakas believe that the mind-only school or the Dzogchen school or somebody 
is attributing more reality to that than they actually are. And that's the basis of the dispute. But in Minjur Rinpoche's understanding, the Dzogchen school isn't attributing any more reality to that. So they're off the hook. <laughs> but there some, there's a beautiful um, way that the Yogacharans responded to these attacks. They were basically unfazed by the criticism. And they said, um, we're not worried about the theory. It's all constructed and it all dissolves when you realize emptiness. This is a wonderful view, I think, to hold to. When we talk about uh, how to appreciate the spirit of these different schools in our own practice, this is one I've come back to again and again. Because the Madhyamakas, truth to tell, are not very far apart from some Theravadins. Practitioners who follow the Abhidhamma and the Vasudhimagga particularly would level the same criticism of the Yogacharans. They're positing something that doesn't truly exist. So, after one, I was teaching one uh, part of a three-month course at a center in Massachusetts, and this fellow knew that I was practicing Dzogchen and sometimes taught with a Dzogchen uh, master, and said to me, uh, how can you do that? Because it says very clearly in uh, the words of the Buddha that uh, if you begin to propagate uh, the false Dhamma, then it will start to erode uh, the true Dhamma in the world, and the words of the Buddha will be lost. And what I said to him is, well, I don't know about that, but this method really works. And I find that a very helpful thing to come back to again and again. Any philosophical view that is put out, ask yourself, number one, do you really know how it is? Do you know from your own direct experience that emptiness and clarity are indivisible? And the way, the extent to which they exist or clarity exists? and the extent to which it doesn't. I think Rinpoche said it's when one, only when one has realized emptiness directly for oneself that one could understand that. Even if one has realized emptiness, one's memory may not be so good. <laughs> so I think it's important to keep asking on these philosophical questions, do I know that absolutely from my own immediate experience? Or am I taking that as someone's teaching someone else's view that, that I'm adopting. And if I don't know it absolutely from my own experience, then there's a possibility that both views could have some validity. Maybe not that either one has to be absolutely right, but they're both different ways of validly describing some, some truthful experience. Then, if we're willing to live with a little bit of ambiguity, then we can say, oh, could this view be useful in my practice? Because all these views are, are meant to lead to our awakening. They're not meant for us to take philosophical stands on and make argument about. They're meant to be helpful to lead to awakening, nothing else. So, can I make use of this view? If you can, then it's a useful and skillful means for you. So that's the way I approach the different views that I hear. If I can learn something from all of them, 
then I'll use them. But I don't have to make a final judgment until I know in my direct experience the way things are. So, one of the things I appreciate a lot in Buddhism is lots of different schools, and therefore they suit different people, different personalities. So some people are drawn to the Yogacara school because it has a, a great basis for faith. Like Rinpoche, I also feel Westerners need a basis for faith. We've lost our ability to believe in anything transcendent, anything that has the, the nature of ultimacy through our, our intellect. And this presents a, a very refined philosophical exposition that gives a basis for faith in something ultimate. And I, f I find it, its impact on Westerners very uplifting. Gives confidence, um, hope, strength. A very helpful view uh, to have. But other people uh, are so logical, like, like Nagarjuna was, that they absolutely need to cut away anything that they can't directly experience. And then it doesn't work so well for them. So then for them, just resting in the quality of emptiness is the useful way forward. Not taking up any other view. Just emptiness of direct experience. Useful for them. So different approaches suit different people. We kind of, we kind of have a joke in, in our scene of the three major schools of Buddhism that are around in the West today. Different people tend to be drawn to them differently. And the, the joke in our scene is that the artists go to Tibetans, the carpenters go to Zen, and the therapists go to Vipassana. <laughs> Little overgeneralized, but you can get the flavor. So on the whole, Kanza says that the Theravadins tend to be a little more rational and the Mahayanas tend to be a little more mystical. This is, this is a distinction I do see uh, in what draws different, different people. But then he qualified that. He said it's because they're not exclusively one way or the other. The difference is really between the rational mysticism of Mahayana and the mystically tinged rationalism of Theravada. <laughs> they had much common ground in the middle ranges of the path where the ascetic strove for emancipation in a quite rational and business-like manner. That is, if you look at practitioners from the outside, you may not see much difference in what they were doing. But a little bit of difference in personality, and so a little bit of difference in emphasis and philosophy. But the basic work of liberating the mind looks much the same. Again, the two have a little bit different perspective on how the path unfolds. The Mahayana tends to view it from the point of view of intrinsic purity, which is only covered by obscurations. And then the obscurations only needed to be removed, like the clouds parting so that the sun can shine through. The Theravada looks more from the point of view of the defilements as being front and center, and how do we work with the defilements in such a way to eliminate them, and what it involves is building up strong qualities of mind, the beautiful qualities of mind, mindfulness, concentration, equanimity, loving kindness, and compassion that can release the defilements. So, 
do you, do you start from the purity going out, or do you start from the defilements working against them to develop strength? From the point of view of moment-by-moment -moment experience, it may not feel very different. But the flavor of it is a little different for the practitioner. Just the, the perspective the practitioner has on their practice may feel a little different. So another distinction. This is from Shabkar. I mean, in either case, there's a lot of work to be done, right? <laughs> this is from Shabkar. Butter is made of the essence of milk, but if the milk isn't churned, the butter won't form. So the butter being the awakened mind, milk being where we are today. Another thing I was curious about, when the Mahayana came, did the Hinayana schools wither away? And uh, they didn't. And uh, in many cases, the two lived together in, in shared monasteries quite happily, practiced side by side. Then there were other monasteries that were dedicated to one or the other. Chinese pilgrim went to India around 400 CE. And his report said that about 60% of the monasteries he found were early school. About 24% were Mahayana. And 16% were mixed, where the two were living together. And again, a later visitor, a pilgrim in the 7th century, uh, just came back and reported that the majority of schools a uh, majority of monasteries were early schools, and a minority were Mahayana at that time. Then, one final uh, development, big development, the Vajrayana. This is, a, to me, a very interesting story. And I found this story mostly in a terrific book called Indestructible Truth, written by Reggie Ray who's a student of Trungpa Rinpoche and a professor at Naropa for a long time and now a, a Dharma teacher in his own right. Indestructible Truth is a really wonderful overview of Tibetan Buddhism. If you're new to the subject, it's a really good way to get a, a read on an, the whole range of systems that are in there. And then one other book uh, called The History of the Buddhist Religion. So from these two sources, this is the story that, that I have. The emergence of the Vajrayana is not a new school philosophically. There's no new philosophical ground being broken, but it's uh, the development of an incredibly powerful bag of tricks. Or as one of my friends put it, um, incredible implements in the technology of consciousness. Tantra and Vajrayana are more or less synonymous, as I understand. So if we talk about tantric teachings in Buddhism or Vajrayana, we're talking about the same body of techniques. But they actually started uh, in Hindu schools and not in Buddhist. They started in the Hindu worship of the god Shiva. Shiva had been an old fertility god, going way, way back. But the growth of uh, Brahmin, Brahmanic culture, overshadowed Shiva for a long time. Shiva was not part of the Brahmanic, Brahminic culture. As Buddhism started to grow up in India, it started to wear away some of the tight hold that the Brahmin caste had, and this allowed the influence of Shiva to come back up into the culture. So on an informal basis, 
people in probably villages and all over the country started doing um, forms of worship to the god Shiva. The style was that they would visualize themselves as Shiva or as his uh, female consorts, goddesses, and dance together. And in this visualization, imagining themselves as the god, they would start to feel that they were channeling Shiva's energy or the energy of the goddesses who were his female counterparts. So this started to be enacted in a ritual way and it was called Deva Yoga, union with the god in the, in the Hindu tradition. Then some of these practitioners said, hmm, this is pretty good stuff. I'm feeling a lot of energy from this. Pretty strong, pretty powerful. What if we actually enacted the intercourse of Shiva and his consort? Well, this was not a public kind of thing to do, but they went off into private settings and began to enact ritual intercourse between those who are visualizing themselves as Shiva and those who are visualizing themselves as Shiva's consort or goddess. This is a powerful way to practice. So this eventually drew uh, Buddhist practitioners also. And the Buddhist practitioners started to understand how they could use the bodily energies that were generated either through the visualization or through intercourse to uh, speed their journey to enlightenment. So some of the tantric practices are clearly about, or primarily about, uh, generating different kinds of bodily energy and using that generated energy for awakening, not simply for pleasure. I mean, not for pleasure. It's not the purpose. Purposes for awakening. So this began to be taken up um, in Buddhist schools, both the visualization and the ritual intercourse. What do you suppose the classical monks and nuns thought about this? They were not too keen. So the way that they tended to accommodate it was either we lose all our practitioners to this scene which is much more happening than what we've got going (laughs) here in the celibate monasteries, or we make some adaptation. So they started to adapt the visualization part of what was going on and bring it into uh, celibate monastic practitioners. So since that time, this has been part of the Buddhist tradition called Vajrayana. It can involve either visualization or it can involve uh, sexual union, either one. Both threads have continued down to the present day. In Tibetan schools, uh, the school of the, of the Galuks, of whom the Dalai Lama is uh, representative, have tended to favor the celibate monastic path ever since the time of Tsongkhapa. That has been their inclination and maintain the uh, discipline of the monastic vows and celibacy. So they uh, tend to use it only in the visualization form. 
But the other schools, particularly the Kagyu and the Nyingma, um, use both the visualization form and the ritual uh, enactment of intercourse form for non-monastics. Monks in those traditions may also be following a completely celibate path, but lay practitioners are able to uh, use both forms of the tantric practices. So there are a range of, of practices that constitute the Vajrayana. I, I don't know enough about them to talk knowledgeably, but obviously the, the visualizations of deities, the mantras, the mandalas are all part of that. Uh, Dzogchen is a tantric practice in the Nyingma school. There are considered to be six levels of tantric practice, many to do with bodily energy, altering and raising bodily energy. Dzogchen is considered the highest of the six tantras and called Ati Yoga in that system. So Dzogchen is a Vajrayana practice, a tantric practice. And one of the most beautiful things that um, can be said, I think, about these practices, and you'll especially appreciate this as Rinpoche unfolds the meditation instructions over the next day or two, is that the Vajrayana takes as the basis of the path the awakened mind. I'll say that again because it's, it's very significant. The Vajrayana takes as the basis of the path the awakened mind. Someone asked a question yesterday about a direct path versus a gradual path. And I think possibly one reason Dzogchen might be considered a direct path is that we start from the point of view of awakening and then we just don't let go of it. That will be the instruction, essentially, in Dzogchen meditation. We start with awakening as, as closely as we can intuit it, and that becomes our path. So you'll hear more. But I just wanted to put that in to illustrate how dramatic the Vajrayana approach is, how uh, kind of revolutionary and a uh, pointer to some of the power of it. So, then when did Dzogchen come along? Dzogchen was a, a later development. Um, the story of its transmission, and I uh, repeat this from a scholar named John Reynolds, who's a, a Westerner, I believe he's British, but uh, speaks Tibetan as a scholar of the old text, said that from what he understands, Dzogchen originated in a being named Samantabhadra. Samantabhadra is a deity in the Vajrayana system, and let me read you who Samantabhadra is. Samantabhadra is the ultimate Dharmakaya aspect of Buddhahood, beyond conception by the finite intellect, being without limitation and all-pervading like infinite space. You got him? So this is where the Dzogchen view originated, and then he transmitted it to a being who was only slightly less connected to our realm, slightly more connected to our realm, named Vajrasattva. Vajrasattva is one of the key deities in, in the Nyingma lineage, 
And he's this statue behind me on the altar in front of the Buddha, also a being of um, great purity. This is a description of Vajrasattva. Vajrasattva represents the principle of Buddha enlightenment, which is beyond the cycle of conditioned existence, beyond all time and history. So Vajrasattva also exists on a little bit different level than you and I exist. And then it said that Vajrasattva transmitted the Dzogchen instructions to Garab Dorje. Garab Dorje was considered to be from Udiana, the same area as Padmasambhava. And the times are very tentative, but maybe around the 6th century CE. Udiana, by the way, I don't know if I mentioned this the other night, is considered to be northwest of what's currently India, perhaps in Pakistan or Afghanistan. Then, Garab Dorje had students who included Vairochana, Vimalamitra, and Padmasambhava. And it was these three who took the Dzogchen teachings into Tibet. And particularly Padmasambhava is revered as the, the founder of the Nyingma lineage in Tibet and the, the one who instructed uh, Tibetans in Dzogchen primarily. Interestingly enough, as a sort of a confirmation of that time frame, Padmasambhava went into Tibet around the 8th century. Two Dzogchen texts were found in caves in China in a place called Dunhuang. If any of you have heard of that, it's a really amazing archaeological find where practitioners uh, lived for years and there are beautiful frescoes still on the wall because it's so dry, it's kind of desert-like. The paintings have been preserved there. You can still visit. Um, two Dzogchen texts were found there in a library that was sealed in the 10th century. So there's clear evidence of Dzogchen teachings in China from the 10th century. It's believed in Tibet from the 8th century. So that gets us to where we are today. <laughs> Here we are with a Dzogchen master from Tibet instructing us in these meditation practices. To complete the story in India, as I mentioned last night, uh, Buddhism basically was wiped out in India between about the 8th and 12th centuries. Uh, invasions from the West came beginning in the 8th century and had gone completely across the Gangetic Plain by the 12th century. So B Buddhism essentially disappeared from India at that time. The monasteries were destroyed. Many of the monks and nuns were killed. The texts were burned. Who knows how many irreplaceable texts were lost. All those early canons were probably around then from the Sarvastivadins and the Sautrantikas and so forth. All of those gone. Who knows how many Mahayana and Vajrayana texts gone due to that. And so we just rely on the, the pieces that remained in Sri Lanka, <laughs> Tibet, and China primarily. So, here we are today. What can we take from the past? I think the understanding that philosophical disputes are conceptual and don't need to divide us personally, that we can respond to the different points of view that are in the different schools and use them in our own uh, practice and teaching.
that there is in the foundation of the Nikaya schools, the classical schools, very clear and concrete step-to-step instructions for a gradual path. In the Mahayana schools, deep philosophical pointings to the ultimate truth of things and inspiring vision of cosmology. And in the Vajrayana, a very powerful set of tools to transform consciousness uh, should we wish to explore them. So I think we're very fortunate to be at a position in history when all of this is available to us. All of it's possible. So we'll stop there and have time. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.